Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. For a couple of decades, in the basement of a library at Berkeley, there was a warren of rooms frequented by the university's blind students. Filled with camaraderie and useful technologies, they gave it the name The Cave. And over time, it served as a very unconventional launch pad for some remarkable people. People who would, as a recent brilliant Stat News article described it, push the disability rights movement into the 21st century. Several of them will join us today, including Dr. Joshua Mealy, a 2021 MacArthur Genius Grant winner. And did you notice the music was a little different this morning? Form has a new theme song. Stay tuned for the show. Coming up next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Okay, you may have guessed that Forum has not switched our theme music to Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up, April Fool's. But we do have a real new theme song in the works. We'll tell you more soon. Get ready. But Never Gonna Give You Up was actually a perfect scene setter for this show because it was the number one song in the country when Joshua Mealy arrived at UC Berkeley in the fall of 1987. He found his way to the basement of Moffat Library to the unassuming hangout of the university's blind students. To describe its importance, I just want to read to you from this incredible piece of journalism by Isabel Cueto in Stat News that inspired this show. We like to tell ourselves, she writes, that geniuses go it alone. When a success story involves a person with a disability, it is often framed as an act of overcoming an inspiring tale of perseverance in the face of unimaginable tragedy, losing a sense or gaining an impediment. But the story of the cave shows quite the opposite, that genius is forged by community in the sharing of information, tools, and resources, that disability is not a curse. That was Isabella Cueto in Stat News. So here to talk with us about that communal genius, what made the cave work, and how accessibility tech has progressed in recent decades, we have Joshua Mealy, principal accessibility researcher at Amazon Lab 126. Welcome, Joshua. Hey, Alexis. Nice to be here. Uh, big first question. Were you a big Rick Astley fan? <laughs> no, man. Uh, no, that was that was definitely not my genre. Um, and, you know, hearing it gave me gave me a little bit of a little bit of, you know, the hives. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, 
but but that's okay i was i'm glad that you haven't switched your theme song my my idea was to play the theme song from the late 80s that forum had but i think uh your producers couldn't find it in time it would have been true. that would have been really fun <laughs> no one could actually remember what it sounded like but we did go looking for it um more more seriously who were you showing up on campus then in 1987 like what were you like um, I was a I was a pain in the ass, extremely cocky little, you know, eighteen year old kid who came from New York and arrived in Berkeley as a freshman. To uh, I, you know, I was really I was really ready to sort of figure out where my life was taking me. Like so many other freshmen who arrive at college, very, uh, very assured, very cocky, and. I learned very quickly that I was extremely un underprepared for not only, uh, you know, going it alone, but for uh, the academic experience that Berkeley was, was offering. I was, I was really, I, I almost failed out um, early on in my, uh, in my college career. I mean, had you chosen Berkeley because it had birthed a good chunk of the disability rights movement, or was that you just wanted to do the coursework that was available? It's a great question. I was I in as part of my under preparation, I didn't understand what the social history of Berkeley was. I didn't mm. understand about the the free speech movement. I didn't understand about the disability rights movement. I didn't know what Berkeley was culturally. I just knew that it had I was I was a physics uh, nerd. I really want I was arriving, you know, with the plan to major in physics, which I did. I found, you know, Berkeley had an element named after it, and that was badass. <laughs> and so, uh, so I, I wanted to go there. And of course, I knew that many of the figures from the from the Manhattan Project and from right. physics history had been figures at Berkeley. And so, so that was that was what I was chasing. I can imagine actually, as someone who loves physics, looking up and seeing, you know, Berkeley Lab up on the hills kind of overlooking this campus would have been a pretty inspiring uh, uh, notion. Right. And as a blind kid, you know, I didn't have that visual, but I, I did have sort of this concept of the historical situation where so many of the people that had created 20th century physics had come through or been from Berkeley. And, and the fact that as I studied chemistry and physics, there was this, you know, there was this element named Berkelium. I was like, oh my God, a place that has an, you know, that's that's advertising you you can't pay for these days. Right. How how did you find your way around campus when you arrived there? Well, it's a pretty complicated campus. And as a blind kid, I actually so just to take a step back and give folks an orientation to what my blindness experience was like mm -hmm. I uh, I was blinded as a small kid like four years old so I grew up um, early my early years were in Brooklyn which is an urban environment and mm -hmm. I was taught to use a cane very early so I was you know as a as a six seven eight-year-old kid able to travel around in my neighborhood independently using a cane and when we moved to Rockland County, which is suburbia, about 20 miles north of New York City, I found myself in a place with no sidewalks, 
no buses, no subways. And if I wanted to get anywhere, I had to get into a car and be brought somewhere. And not only that, but I also found myself in a situation where I wasn't, um, uh, I, I was not nearly as well accepted as, a, you know, as a peer, as a, as a kid, as I was in um, Brooklyn. And I found I did not want to carry a cane because I didn't want to be branded as being, you know, I was already obviously different because I had burns all over my face and I was blind and I did not want to carry a cane that would, would mark me, would additionally mark me and mm. also would be something that bullies could take away and use mm. as a, as a tool against me. So I stopped using a cane until, uh, well, for, for the foreseeable future. And then when I went to college, I, I didn't have a lot of exposure to mature, connected, cool, blind people as a growing up. And so all I had was access to, you know, literature and popular culture, which implied to me that blind kids were supposed to get dogs when they went to college. So mm. I, I spent my summer before college getting a guide dog at Seeing Eye in New Jersey. And when I arrived in Berkeley, I had a dog. And, um, and so I was a guide dog user for the first several years of, of college. And this was interesting because it was in an environment where most of the other blind people were not using dogs. They were cane users. And, um, and so, uh, but when I arrived in Berkeley, so I had this, this, um, guide dog, which was an, you know, an, a wonderful experience and very, um, very different from using a cane. We can talk about that. Mm -hmm. But um, I found my way around um, with the help of my guide dog and uh, with the aid of the other blind um, students and faculty or students and staff who I met at Berkeley and who I had connected. I had connected with the disabled students um, program uh, early on, before I before I even came to Berkeley, I knew that there was a disabled students program and there was a blind staff member there, Jim Gammon, who helped me orient myself and get, get situated. And he and other blind people who I met early on at Berkeley gave me advice about how to get different places. And there was also a beautiful campus model, a huge uh, four by six foot, maybe bigger, campus model that was available to us that we could look at, that we could feel. And it was a topographical model with buildings and grass and trees and paths. And I used, I used that exhaustively to help myself orient to the campus. I've always loved maps. And that was, that was a powerful tool for my orientation to not only the campus, but, um, but to Berkeley itself. So I want you to describe heading down into the cave for the first time. I also just want to apologize for using the cited metaphor around Berkeley Lab. I mean, I just uh, <laughs> was thinking about how ableist language creeps in everywhere, even when you're when you're not expecting it. I just want to uh, apologize for that. Um, but maybe you can describe, you know, heading down into the cave and remembering either your first time or kind of the general impression that remains of that place. Well, um, First of all, Alexis, don't no need to apologize. And visual visual metaphors and visual language pervade our culture and what we what we say. So 
so no need to sort of adjust. Okay, I'm still going to feel terrible it, about it, but thank you. Yeah, don't, don't, you're, you're cool. But, but also, um, you know, and it's, it's, it is, uh, it is a powerful visual, visual, uh, uh, you know, icon to think about that. And that's, I think that's, that's a totally valid thing. Um, so the first time I went down into the cave, I, everything was new. I was a college kid arriving from 3000 miles away from, to a city I didn't know. And that was part of my reasoning for heading to Berkeley. I wanted to go somewhere where I didn't know anybody, where no one had preconceived notions of who I was or what I could be. I was really trying to get away from a fairly small town where I had known everyone for uh, you know, a right. decade or more, and and who remembered the goofy things I had done in third grade and fourth grade, and I, I didn't need that. Um, and I think that that's a very common motivation for college kids. So I was, I was, it was all new. And heading down into the cave was a fascinating experience because as I as I arrived there, it was just it had a certain feel to it, which was old. It, it didn't feel like a new place. It was a place that had been lived in and used hard and where people had clearly been living their lives and, and performing their, their sort of daily activities, not just as students studying, but as, as people living. And so I knew that I could, I knew immediately that this was a place where people spent a lot of time. <laughs> and, and, and it was, it was a place that I, I was nervous about at first because it was such a cultural, it, there, there was a, there was a group there. There was an in-group and I was not in the in-group. I was, oh, man. I was somebody, I was a new kid. Well, we are going to talk more about the cave and bring on some other folks who spent time there. The cave, a legendary hub for blind innovators at UC Berkeley. We're talking with Joshua Mealy, principal accessibility researcher at Amazon and a MacArthur fellow. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about The Cave, a legendary hub for blind students at UC Berkeley. And right now, we're going to add some voices to our conversation. Right, We're joined by Joshua Mealy, 
who is Principal Accessibility research, uh, Researcher at Amazon and a MacArthur Fellow who we've been talking with. We're going to add Lori Gray, Adventures and Outings Program Manager, Bay Area Outreach and Recreation Program, oftentimes abbreviated as BORP, which offers recreational and sports opportunities to people with physical disabilities and visual impairments. Welcome, Lori. Thanks for joining us. We also have Fatime Haghihi, uh, a professor of neuroscience at Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, who runs the epigenetics-focused uh, lab at the James J. Peters Veteran Affairs Medical Center in New York. Welcome, Fatima. Thank you. Hi. So I wanted to uh, talk with you, Fatima, about sort of what your experience of going into the cave was. Uh, you know, you didn't work on technology, you worked in a, a totally different field. But what did it sort of offer to you as a place to, to go? Well, I mean, from a practical standpoint, um, you know, as, as Josh mentioned, you know, you, you go into this place for the first time and clearly... Um, it was not only a place for a lot of the um, blind students to come in and actually do the work, um, use whatever accessible technology that was available at the time, but also to meet with the reader assistants and so forth. Um, but it was really a place where I found um, where you could interact with other um, blind students who are really high achieving. I mean, at the time, I didn't realize this, you know, because you come in and most often um, your your prior experience is, is a, as a blind individual, um, kind of not, not being around a lot of other folks, you're sort of going at it solo through life and having the opportunity to, you know, go to cave and, and really interact with you know, people like Josh, um, people like Robert and his sister at the time who were also students um, at the UC Berkeley and attending um, and just coming to the cave for their, um, you know, studies. And, and it, we became a core group, I felt like, mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know, and we, we really motivated each other in a way, but not on purpose, but it just, it was just sort of in the, um, in the air, if you will, wow. right? So. so your, you know, research... It's it's just in its own, on its own, you know. You you, it's not primarily uh, related to to blindness or or vision necessarily. How how do you think that your experience of the cave and your kind of social and and political evolution from that time kind of shows up in your work, if if at all? I think um, the way it shows up is that you know if you're in a cave environment at such an early on and sort of in your uh, development of your professional identity, right? You, um, you become very comfortable in your own skin. You become comfortable in, in um, being a blind individual and interacting with the world and, and with your environment, right? Um, so I think in that way, although I didn't really take the path of, of you know, working on disability related sort of things or issues mm -hmm. and I went into sort of science um I think just by the virtue of becoming comfortable and sort of forming that identity very early um in life um I I think I could go into these really you know science environments where there aren't a lot of blind 
individuals is still to this day, mm-hmm. unfortunately, <laughs> doing what I do um, and being comfortable with it and having people actually adjust to mm-hmm. to me. And, and, and believe it or not, people are quite um, accommodating and mm-hmm. understanding once they are interacting with you and you are very vocal about what you need and how you can be effective. So I think that that to me was critical. Lori Gray, can you tell us your story? Like, where'd you grow up and how'd you decide to go to Berkeley? Well, I had planned to go to UC Berkeley from the time I was 10 years old on. I wanted to be a uh, disability civil rights uh, attorney. And Berkeley, I came from a small town as well, down in Southern California, Simi Valley. And I wanted to go somewhere like Berkeley, and I had no idea how challenging it would be. And when I got there, um, I was definitely in over my head. But coming down to the cave gave me community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the conversations and friendships that I've made that I still have to this day from the cave helped me become a better advocate and uh, has helped me in the work that I do now. Yeah. You know, when you first arrived at Berkeley, I believe it was pre the Americans with Disabilities Act, was there, did you see a huge difference after that law passed or, or was there more continuity than maybe we might have liked? Well, 504 was already in play. So we had some some ability to to get our needs met. Can you talk um, about 504? Well, 504 uh, was passed in 73, but not enacted until 78 after the occupation of the federal building for 26 days in San Francisco by the disabled community, which um, resulted in the law being signed and enforced. And that gave us access not only programmatically, but physically to any entity that received federal funding. And so we had readers that um, were, there was a fund for readers and there was uh, an expectation of access. Um, Not everything was accessible. When some of the students down in the cave wanted to take computer science classes, there was no accessible equipment, no screen readers that talked, none of that. And so we all signed up for computer science class. We all took it. We had to work with readers and have the readers read everything on the screen to us. And in my case, help me type. And um, that was really challenging. And it became clear that none of us were being able to complete the course. And so we all went to the professor and said, look, the experiment of having all of us with visual impairments uh, take computer science classes not working. We need technology. Mm-hmm. And that's how we got the first, what was it, Tan, you know, Radio Shack Tandy <laughs> 86 or whatever that thing was, down in the cave. Yeah, And that's, Josh, that was yeah. our beginning. Joshua, I assume that there were some kinds of assistive technology that were kind of only available in the cave. Is that true? Um. There, there were a bunch of pieces of technology that were available in the cave. At that time, we didn't have 
nobody had, this was the 80s. We didn't, very few people had their own computers and computers that would talk that you could use as a blind person were very rare. So we did have computers in the cave that, that not only could talk, but that we could read the screens of, terminals that could access the library's uh, card catalog and the online databases, many of which were full text, which was really cool. There were uh, very early scanners, reading machines. The Kurzweil reading machine was a, an early piece of technology. There were, of course, magnification tools, uh, closed circuit TVs that we could use if you had some vision remaining. There were a bunch of other things that were down in the, in the cave that we used and abused and uh, experimented with. And of course, you know, tried to, uh, tried to push beyond what they were intended to be able to do which was, you know, part of the innovation thing that I think we're, we're getting at. Can I, um, I want to, I want to hit on a, a, a couple of themes that sure. Fatima and Lori also mentioned. One is that both uh, Fatima and I, I think both experienced this, that when we were growing up, we really didn't have any good, powerful, blind role models. And so arriving mm -hmm. at Berkeley was right. not only, not only an experience of sort of going to college like everybody experiences, but it was a, a powerful experience of meeting our people, which I think is a very common arriving at college thing for people to do. You grow up in a place and you think you're the only one, <laughs> and then you show up at a, at a place and there's not only, not only are you not the only one, but there's all these other people and they're smart and they're cool and they're funny and you wanna be friends with them and you find your people. And that is, not so this this experience that we're describing is not it's unique to us because we are blind but it is not a unique college experience it's an empowerment that so many college kids go through and finding identity finding friends finding your people is the beginning of self-empowerment the beginning of realizing that wow i am i am just I'm part of a community and that community is what empowers you. And then, um, you know, Lori was, Lori was saying that, you know, we, we supported each other and so on. And the cave was not just, we talk about the cave and, but the cave was just a place, right? The cave, yeah. there was nothing special about the cave. It was kind of grungy. It was, it was, you know, dusty and, but, but it was the people you could have that same place. And if the people had been different, if the people were less inclined to hang out with each other and support each other, it would have been a completely different thing. And I got to say, Lori, when I showed up, Lori was sort of the iconic <laughs> cave, uh, the central figure of the cave. And she was, she was just, she had gone you know, to law school shortly before I arrived. So she wasn't as present in the cave, but her, her, the echoes of Lori were so powerful that the culture kind of continued this, this um, mutual support, this idea that we were all in it together. And I think that while Lori was not unique in that, she was the most, the most central figure in the era when I arrived in the cave of, hey, we're doing this together. We're supporting each other and we're helping each other out. And without, without the people that do that kind of thing, that, that help each other and that tell each other the story, the narrative that, yes, we're here we're to help each together. other out, 
it's 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 a you don't you don't have anything so it's it's really it's not just a place it's the people and it's the type of people that you have the people that lead the people that that reach out to each other the people that connect the community to provide that mutual support Laurie gray how does it feel to uh hear someone describe you in, in that way in that kind of central role in this network of people well generally i i copped a complete deniability and say i didn't do it but um <laughs> can't really get away with that here so yeah i mean i it was the the people that i got to hang out with and you know maybe mentor a little but mostly just watch come into their own was i didn't realize at the time how life affirming that was and what an amazing thing it was you know looking back you know as i said i mean i i figured out so many things while being down in the cave and being challenged by my own ever expanding disability set and being accepted i mean i was having fluorescent lights trigger seizures so i was having 20 to 40 seizures a day mm-hmm. and you know my fellow caveites would you know help me out during all that and you know uh i learned so much yeah. from them as well as them from me so it was it was a amazing opportunity uh Fatima, before we let you go do you want to add anything to this i feel like this is a, a sharing session about what this place meant <laughs> I mean, I, I think reminiscing, it, it was a very unique time. It was a unique um, group of people, of really high-achieving people. And I think we really, um, maybe not knowingly, pushed each other uh, to be better, to do more. And um, I have to say, I mean, I agree with you, Josh. I don't think, um, it, I mean, I haven't had that kind of an experience since I left because, you know, we all went on our own directions and ways and integrated and sort of various professions. And, and it's become, again, sort of more of a lonely um, experience. But just having that experience and knowing that there are um, folks that were there at the cave at the time um, who are, you know, really high achieving um, folks that can make an impact as as individuals with disabilities is, is, is incredible. Um, so we're talking about the cave, a legendary hub for blind students at UC Berkeley with Fatima Hakigi, a professor of neuroscience at the icon school of medicine at Mount Sinai runs an epigenetics uh, focused lab at James J. Peters veterans affairs medical center. It's quite a name uh, in New York. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We're all, we've also been joined by Lori Gray, Adventures and Outings Program Manager at Bay Area Outreach and Recreation Program, also a legendary caveite, as you've been hearing. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Lori. And we also do want to hear from you. What's one piece of accessibility tech that you want to shout out? Like, What do you want to see invented? We'd also love to hear, were you or are you involved with the disability rights movement? And how do you see technological innovation helping or hurting the quest for equal rights.
You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum. And the email, as always, is forum at kqed.org. Um, Mary writes in to say, Josh, you and I both started at Berkeley in the fall of 1987. We've crossed paths on campus many times. Over the years, I've admired you, and when I finally read your life story, I was even more astounded by your strength. It's wonderful, after all these years, to finally uh, hear your voice. Sarah writes, I had multiple learning differences, though I'm sighted, and thanks to the Disability Student Program, I was able to access the incredible space of the cave. For a person who always felt othered at high school because of my learning difficulties, I felt comfortable and supported in the UCB cave. I would not have been able to successfully complete my degree otherwise. Go cave. Go DSP. Go Bears. <laughs> uh, Joshua, uh, as, we, as we head into this break, I kind of want you to set the table for us on sort of where we are with assistive technologies right now, and then we'll spend our kind of last segment kind of spinning it forward, talking about where, where are you trying to take things and what's missing from the ecosystem of, of things for, for people without sight? Sure. Uh, we're at a very exciting time with regard to technology and culture. We're, uh, we're really creating a lot of tools now that have been lacking, but the the main problem that we're still facing is not the technology. There are two sides to this. There's the, you know, accessibility and disability inclusion. Technology is sort of accessibility is the technical side and disability inclusion is the cultural side. And we're making really great advances on the technical side, but the technical side is not the hard part. The hard part mm -hmm. is the cultural side. And um, while we are making progress, we still have a long way to go. We won't, um, we won't have equal access until the culture sort of shifts enough to, uh, to allow people with disabilities to participate as equals. We're talking uh, about the cave as well as assistive technologies. The cave was a legendary hub for blind students at UC Berkeley. We're joined through the hour uh, by Joshua Mealy, principal accessibility researcher at Amazon Lab 126 and a MacArthur Fellow. And we'd love to hear from you. What's one piece of accessibility tech you want to shout out? What's a piece of the culture you'd like to change? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about assistive technologies and their roots in a place called the Cave, a legendary hub for blind students at UC Berkeley. We're joined by Dr. Joshua Mealy, Principal Accessibility Researcher at Amazon, a MacArthur Fellow, and many other things uh, besides. I want to get uh, our first caller in because it kind of goes right to your point, Josh, about the technological part's not necessarily being the most difficult piece. It's about making sure that these things are accessible and the culture supports them. Uh, Nicole in Mill Valley, welcome to the show. Oh, hi. Thanks so much for having me. This is so exciting to hear. So uh, my uncle lives right near Berkeley, and he's been using a JAWS on an old PC and an Opticon, and I've been sort of trying to get him to perhaps go to a, an Apple. And so he went into an Apple store, and nobody was there to show him how to use the adaptive technology. So... Um, I would love to know if there's anywhere sort of near Berkeley that he might be able to go to get himself, um, you know, a newer, more up-to-date uh, adaptive technology for him. Yeah. Great. Thanks so much for that question, Nicole. Josh? Thanks, Nicole. Um, well, the the best answer, I think, is so I, I've been involved with the San Francisco Lighthouse for a number of years. I was the president of the board. I think that the Lighthouse is probably the best place for him to go to learn about what he what he could use to his benefit and to get training. The Apple Store, it's interesting. I have uh, had surprisingly good experiences in Apple Stores with staff understanding about accessibility. So it could just be that the folks in the store at the time were uh, were still learning about it or didn't know. But I would I would really go to uh, straight to the source, the Lighthouse is really a great place for training and orientation as you are trying to build skills as a blind person or trying to expand your skills as a blind person. Yeah. And they, they serve uh, they serve the whole Bay Area, the East Bay. They serve all of uh, Northern California. Yeah. Emily in San Jose, you'd like to talk about Lighthouse, too. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm calling to publicly thank Josh for the amazing work he's done with teenagers and youth at the Lighthouse. Um, my son and all of my son's friends, my son is blind and hearing impaired, have gone to his um, engineering workshops. Josh volunteers time at uh, Enchanted Hills Camp, which is an overnight camp for blind kids. And the speakers talked about not having role models until they got to college. So the work that Josh and other people do at the Lighthouse gives kids those role models now when they're young and they don't have to wait until college. And that work is it, it changes lives of young people um, all over, actually all over the world. My son has a blind friend in Poland because of Enchanted Hills Camp. So thank you, Josh, from the, from the bottom thank of you. my heart. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. Just hearing hearing these stories it makes you want to cry. It's just uh, it does feel like the the modeling that you've been able to do for people and the tools that you've been able to build have just had such an amazing impact on people's lives. And we wanted to. Um, can I just say? Can I just yeah. quickly say the, sure. the 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 stuff that Emily was referencing is my work with what I call the Blind Arduino Project, but it goes way beyond Arduino. It's I do a lot of electronics work and making work with kids and adults about teaching blind people how to work with the tools of the hobby robotics movement, you know, uh, microprocessors and uh, sensors and various, you know, various part pieces of very inexpensive, ubiquitous electronics, stuff that you can just order and buy for a few dollars a piece. 
and build really cool stuff with. And of course, there's lots of lots of assumptions that blind people can't do that kind of work. And so I do a lot of uh, workshops and trainings with folks of all ages, teaching them not only how to work with that stuff, but how to potentially build their own accessibility technologies that meet their own needs according to their own designs and interests. And that is incredibly empowering for people. And I, it is the most, it is some of the most rewarding work I do. It really is. It does feel like there's some roots in the cave there too, right? Like you said, finding, finding these various pieces of technology and kind of pushing them to, to meet your own needs. Yeah. Yep. 100%. Um, I want to bring in Jerry from San Francisco. Welcome, Jerry. Here I come. Hello. Good day. Good day. Hi, Jerry. Hey, Josh. What a wonderful thing to hear you on the radio. I um, want us to explore the creation of a dynamic, uh, high-resolution, tactile, visual screen substitution so we can feel pictorial and spatial information. Mm. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what, what Jerry is referring to is what we jokingly call the Holy Braille. The, <laughs> uh, the, the idea that there could be sort of uh, essentially a screen that you can feel. And it is a, it is a surprisingly difficult engineering problem all the engineers, all the engineers out there, I can I can feel them scratching their heads and thinking, oh, that can't be that hard. Well, it's actually pretty hard. And once you once you add in all of the requirements of uh, price and reliability and portability and uh, high resolution, et cetera, yes, I want that too, Jerry, because part of uh, tactile graphics, being able to feel, you know, we talked earlier about maps and how important they are, and in science and math, how important graphics are in education and just in work. You know, as a graduate student, when I was doing psychoacoustics, uh, one of the hardest things I needed to do before I could begin doing my actual graduate work was developing a set of tools that would allow me to print out my data in a in a tactile form so I could so I could look at quote unquote and interpret my data. And so uh, a, a tactile screen would be incredibly useful. And while we don't have it yet, we are getting closer. Um, there are some promising technologies. The, the thing is that this has been we've been getting closer for decades and decades and it's just it it is this it is tantalizing. Literally, uh, I hope we're. I hope we get there soon, but it is one of those things that we all want that we that we can't quite get to yet mm-hmm. because because generally you know it exists, but it's too expensive. So there yeah. it is. You know, uh, we it turns out have uh, a supervisor at the cave who called in. Uh, you, Jim, uh, welcome to the show. Jim from Martinez. Good morning. Um, I, I uh, got a call from Roberto Gonzalez uh, earlier. I, I kind of heard the message from the other room. I thought it was uh, was next week that you guys were going to be on. I didn't know it was today, so I, I missed the whole <laughs> first part of the program. And uh-huh. And then I also thought, oh, it's an April Fool's joke. So... <laughs> 
we are so so can you tell us about josh the josh you encountered when you were you know trying to trying to keep things uh in order there at the cave be gentle jimmy (laughs) (laughs) well when 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 the the screener when i first called in she said what are your what are your favorite memories about the cave i said I couldn't uh, talk about them on the air, <laughs> but uh, but I got to say it was um, it, it was uh, it was always you know a learning experience, and it kept uh, kept us all on our toes in terms of uh, what we what we might find when we when we went to the cave. <laughs> and what it was a, what it was a it was a wonderful unique. Uh, Place. I mean, so I get one of my favorite. I think constructive times there was when we would find ourselves just sort of in a, in an impromptu uh, gathering in the kind of, if you will, the lobby area, the common area of the place, and we would people, students would be sharing. You know, like, oh, take this class by this professor. They really get it. They get the they get what you need as far as accommodations. Or don't take this guy. He's a jerk or whatever. <laughs> or, and then we would talk about um, common common issues about mobility and things that that are common to um, for people that are, that are blind or visually impaired that that uh, people that are sighted just wouldn't get. Uh, and I can't really think of an example, but like I could be walking, let's say in the uh, Trans Bay bus terminal or something. And, and I'll say, where is the uh, the uh, 72 line or whatever? And, that's, and somebody would say, oh, it's over there. <laughs> and, <laughs> great. and that would happen all the time. And he's, great, where is over there, you know? <laughs> anyway, it was, it, was, it was a common uh, way of getting, yeah. uh, sharing a lot of knowledge and networking, if you will. Yeah. So Thanks Jimmy, so. when yeah. when oh, I when I when I first arrived at the cave, Jimmy was in charge, ostensibly in charge of the cave, which was an unenviable position to be in. But he he was sort of <laughs> he was one of us at the same time as he was sort of trying to keep a lid on on things. And it was it was in large part because of Jimmy's uh, leadership and ability to sort of bridge this gap between the university sort of administration and the blind culture that we were allowed to to do what we did if if we had had a different person in charge they would have tried to clamp down on us they would have tried to keep but jimmy was you know he was blind he is blind he's and he was one of us and he yeah, understood what we were he, yeah you still got that going on jim um yeah he was, yeah yeah you, he you, was you, one you of us come up with yeah you haven't come up with a cure yet josh <laughs> no man, I'm 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 working on getting more people to be blind. Actually, <laughs> no, well, April Fool's. Yeah, I used to I used to sort of joke, you know, when they say, "Well, where do you work?" I work at the Disabled Students Program. I said, "We, you know, we have a quota. We we string, uh, you know, we we let we encourage people to use, uh, you know, fireworks, and we string piano wires across the back paths <laughs> around neck height and stuff. I mean, I was a, had a weird sense of humor, you know." recruiting blind students uh, uh from from the bottom up um right <laughs> so um uh it sounds to me josh i mean one of the things that I, that really intrigued me about this great story in in stat news was kind of the relationship between exactly the kind of atmosphere of 
you know, I don't want to say chaos, but kind of misrule or openness or sort of it wasn't like everything was perfectly controlled, but that that actually played into the way that you thought about innovation and and changing the technological possibilities for people. Yeah, well, it was a very dynamic time. The technology that was available for blind people was changing rapidly. It was at the time, you know, the late 80s, early 90s was when we were switching from graphical, you know, switching from uh, text-based computers to graphical computers, which was which was terrifying for most blind people because we had we had achieved access to text-based computers. And then here comes the Mac, here comes the graphical user interface, the mouse and icons and checkboxes. And uh, we thought we thought we were going to lose access to computers. We thought we were going to get left behind. So there was a lot of rapid innovation happening in that area. There was rapid innovation happening in OCR and in other areas of, of technology that were really meaningful to us. GPS was starting to come online. It was a very exciting time. And I think that we were also, we were just college kids. And this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about the, you know, it's not the place, it's the people. And part, there are plenty of blind communities out there in the world. There are plenty of folks that that know each other and hang out together. But this was young people. This was students. This was people who are at one, you know, one of the top-notch public universities in the world. And we were creative. We were thinking, we were tr all trying to think about new stuff and how we could do the things we wanted to do and leverage technology to help us. And so it was, it was, it was kind of all about thinking about what the technolo technological possibilities were. And at the same time, thinking about what the social possibilities mm -hmm. were, because we were in, we were still living in the same air that had fostered the, the, the free speech movement and the disability rights yeah. movement and the civil rights movement and all of that. Jim, thanks so much for uh, for giving us a call and for clearly helping create this wonderful space. I mean, Mike, uh, listener Mike writes, the cave was not unique, but it was empowering. Blind people benefit greatly from being around each other. The reason there is politically organized disabled movement today is because blind kids used to attend state residential schools where they had access to each other and teachers who encouraged them to take our place in the world. Wonderful hearing these fine people. Um, Joshua, I wanted to ask you, um, many people out there may not understand that a lot of just kind of everyday technologies that, that people of all uh, different types use originated as accessibility features. So maybe you could talk a little bit about kind of the, the curb cuts, but in the technology world and how some of these innovations uh, make their way um, out of disabled communities to, to everyone. Sure. And curb cuts are, of course, the poster child for, uh, you know, what we, what, you know, universal access or technologies that start as disability accommodations, but which end up as being helpful for huge numbers of people who don't have disabilities. I think audiobooks are a great example. We've been, you know, audiobooks were created in the, well, as, as soon as we had recording technologies, we were thinking of how to use that for blind people. Thomas Edison, uh, you know, was was definitely aware and I think 
you know, did some writing and talking about how to use recordings for blind people. The Library of Congress created this talking book library in the 1930s with the um, uh, American Foundation for the Blind. And so recorded books were designed and developed as an accommodation for blind people to have access to text. And now we've got things like audible.com and mm -hmm. we've got huge numbers of people listening to books. And it's uh, while it's really fascinating because it began as an accommodation for blind people, but of course, people who have other types of print reading disabilities have found it extremely useful over the years, dyslexia and other, uh, other print reading disabilities. And now it's mainstream. Uh, you've got you've got everybody listening to books, and that's uh, that's a, a great example. Um, a lot of the other ones are sort of apocryphal. Uh, it's it's hard to sort of pin down mm -hmm. whether or not they were uh, they were for originally for accessibility or not. The speech synthesizer, of course, was uh, is one of them. The the idea that you could have a computer talk is mm -hmm. uh was was designed you know and conceived largely as an accommodation i think they probably thought it would be cool for computers to talk anyway but it was <laughs> a, a great thing for blind people and now we've got you know we've got things like uh alexa and siri and you know we we're using you know we have we have text to speech that sounds very, very pretty good naturalistic. Yeah, yeah really, really yeah, doesn't sound robotic uh, these days. And there's um, there are lots of other examples. But the yeah. the whole idea is that if you design things correctly, if you think about the disability use cases for things as you build them, then not only will you accommodate people with disabilities, not only will the thing that you're designing and building be usable by people with disabilities, but it will help everyone Everybody. as yeah. as 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 it goes. Yeah. Yep. We were talking about the Cave, a legendary hub for blind students at UC Berkeley, with Dr. Joshua Mealy, a principal accessibility researcher at Amazon. Thank you so much, Josh. Forum is produced by Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, Susie Britton, Dan Zoll, Grace Wan, and Carolyn Smith. Cesar Saldana was our engagement producer this week. Judy Campbell's lead producer for the 9 o'clock hour. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, Brendan Willard, Chris Hoff. Our interns are Jennifer Ng and Paul C. Kelly Campos. Our executive editor is Ethan Tovin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.